Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 13, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to, him, said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honour. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he ordered that their request be granted and had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Heavenly Father, we pray that in uh, coming to your word, we will see Jesus anew and afresh this day. In his name, amen. What am I? First conceived of by Tertullian of Carthage. Well, that's a dead giveaway. No, in the third century, then enumerated, given a number, by Pope Gregory I in the 6th century, then expanded and explained by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, and then further popularised in a 90s film with Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. I am what is known as the... Well done, who was that Mr Linney? Oh, sorry sir, the seven deadly sins. Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. Sloth. Yeah. It's a good word. Uh, there are no such thing as the seven deadly sins in the Bible. In the Bible, all sins are an expression of the fact that we're already actually dead and are cut off toward God. But if you absolutely had to, had to, choose a type of sin that you think is worse than all the others... What would you say is the deadliest of all sins? Each of those seven sins are mentioned in the Bible, along with all sorts of other sins and evil. 
If you're forced to mark out one sin as being worse than all the others, what would you choose? And FYI, for the sake of this exercise, you can't say blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I know we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. So apart from that one, which is like the eternally unforgivable sin, what would you say is the deadliest of all sins? Think about it for three seconds. Good. Whatever you've got in mind, freeze. Hold it there. And let's see if you think that same thing after we get through today's passage, which I believe is the final instalment for our series in Matthew's Gospel until next year. So we're doing Matthew over five years in term one. Uh, Anyway, Uh, we're right in the thick centre of Matthew's Gospel. We've got lots of teaching from Jesus about Uh, the kingdom of heaven that he has come to establish and a prominent theme over the last few weeks, last few passages, has been the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ. That Jesus was doing many miraculous signs was obvious for anyone to see, even his enemies did not deny that Jesus exercised supernatural power. But often people rejected the idea that his miraculous signs showed him to be the Christ, that they showed him to be the Messiah. For example, the Pharisees, if you remember, after Jesus healed a blind and mute man, claimed that it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow dries out demons. Yes, he's obviously got the miraculous power, but it's satanic, it's, it's not from God. It can't prove that he's the Christ. Uh, Then in today's passage, in the first section, we've got people asking, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers in such a way that indicates that they're dubious about the source of Jesus' power, for they certainly can't bring themselves to conclude that he's the Christ. And in the second section of today's passage, we have uh, something similar. Someone claiming, well, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And again, The miraculous powers aren't denied, the signs of him being the Messiah aren't denied, but rather than accept that the signs prove him to be the Christ, God's chosen king, an alternative explanation gets consistently given. Now, Matthew wants us, the, the, the church, to be aware of these kinds of rejection because they give us a greater precision of understanding of who Jesus truly is. They prepare us for how people may respond to to gospel mission and they increase our gratitude, I think, for having received him as he truly is, as the Christ, the Son of God, thereby causing us yet again to overflow with thankfulness on account of continuing our lives in him. So I hope you're ready to get stuck into it together. If you're a note taker, we're point one on the outlines. The reason for rejection of Jesus' messiahship, number one, is familiarity. We read from verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. Now notice, first of all, Jesus is no longer speaking in order to divide the crowd and reject those who don't have ears to hear. That's what he has been doing when he spoke in parables, as we've seen over the last few weeks. But he's finished 
speaking in the parables now, and he's teaching, and teaching in their synagogue of his hometown, would have been Nazareth. His extraordinary teaching and his miraculous power are obviously on display for all to see. And you can look through all the Gospels, the examples of Jesus, when he's doing teaching and and, and signs. You can pick almost anywhere and you'll see what it's like. And yet, even though he's teaching, doing his, affirming that he's Christhood by the signs, he is still ultimately, by and large at least, rejected. And in this case, the rejection is on the basis of familiarity. These are people that have known Jesus since he was a kid. He's the kid down the road. Along with Joseph and Mary and the other children that Joseph and Mary have have had, Jesus' brothers and sisters. Jesus' ordinariness means they don't want to accept his extraordinariness. You think it's going to be the Christ with all this build up for years of the Old Testament revelation, as if it's that kid next door, you know, it can't be him, that kind of thing. And that shows you and I that it is totally possible to have known Jesus in the flesh during his time on earth, to have heard his plain teaching, not just the parables, but his plain teaching, to have witnessed his miraculous power and yet in accordance with that age-old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, to still reject him as God's saving Messiah. And of course, that phenomenon remains to our day, doesn't it? We know that it's possible to know and believe that Jesus even rose bodily from the dead, to call him even Christ and Lord, and yet to be deceived into thinking that familiarity is the same thing as living with him as the Lord and Saviour of your life. Um, Going to get into some gloriously controversial territory. I do not think it's right for Christians to insist that their children should only ever go to a Christian school or for Christians to insist that their children should only ever go to a public school. there are always pros and cons with every school, with every family. Things need to be weighed up on an individual basis. There are no thou shouts in the scripture about the, the kind of school you send your kids to. I happen to send my children to a Christian school in which there are many wonderful gospel opportunities and many wonderful ministries. But one of the great dangers of a Christian school is that at least as far as I've seen it, it's very often to see kids who get just enough teaching from the Bible. And sometimes it's just enough insipid teaching from the Bible because you don't want to offend the parents to make them think they're right with God when it's obvious that they, and frankly, a sizable portion of the teaching staff, are clearly not. Uh, They get enough familiarity with Jesus to effectively inoculate them against the Lordship of Jesus. And it's hard to preach the gospel to someone who thinks they know it all because day in, day out, they heard it for years because they're a student or a teacher at a Christian school. And of course, though, the same phenomenon can happen at church. I've heard testimonies of wonderful Christians who said they sat in Bible teaching churches even for years and called themselves Christian before actually becoming disciples of the Lord. Now, of course, I praise and thank God that there are people who, on account of hearing the good news at a Christian school or hearing the gospel at a Bible-believing church, have repented, have entrusted their lives to Jesus, no matter how long that process may have taken. 
Praise God for Christian schools, and even more so for churches that sit under the Word of God. The problem, though, is the trap of familiarity breeding the contempt. Hence, Jesus said to the people, even of his own hometown, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, and, wow, controversy, even in his own home. We know from elsewhere in the Gospel that there was quite a long time before even his own family believed him to be the Christ. Therefore, 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. In other words, he didn't waste time showing them he was the Christ because people were already settled in their rejection of him. How can we guard ourselves against drifting to the point where our familiarity with Jesus and familiarity with the Word of God replaces our love and obedience of Jesus and his word? Well, that's a very good and very right question to ask, and I will talk about that in just a little while. But for now, we've got a second reason for the rejection of Jesus as Messiah, namely paganism and guilt. So chapter 14 and verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, of course, there is no real precedent in the Word of God for that kind of explanation anyway. I mean, you've got the spirit of Elijah coming upon Elisha when Elijah gets caught up to heaven, I guess. You've got King Saul raising Samuel from the dead using a medium, but none of that comes close to this idea that if you've beheaded somebody and are guilt-stricken, that they therefore return in the form of some other human with miraculous power. This is completely foreign to any of the revelation God's ever given. It's total superstition and paganism. Now, to help us understand Herod's thinking, Matthew needs to provide some background information as to why Herod has rejected Jesus as the Christ in this most superstitious matter. But really, so those first three verses are the, are the kind of teaching point, and then you've just got a bit of, uh, a fair bit of background to, to help you understand why he's doing this. Herod had taken his own brother Philip's wife, Herodias, while Philip was still very much alive. Herodias herself was 100% in on this, because she seems to be all about status rather than relational fidelity. I did a bit of history reading from Josephus this week and learn about this family. They are a mess of a family, let me tell you. And so John the Baptist, being an Old Testament prophet, was doing the right job that he was supposed to do, trying to get Israel's king to live in obedience to God's word rather than flagrantly flouting it. Neither Herod nor Herodias seem to appreciate John doing that, and so John get put in prison. Verse 5, Herod wanted to kill John, but, like most rulers who are in it more for gain than for truth and justice, he was afraid of the people because they consider John, rightly, a prophet. And, of course... We who know how the rest of the gospel plays out can't help at this point but to think of Pontius Pilate, who was also driven by the need for crowd-pleasing, for self-approval and support rather than for actual justice. And thereby he was used as a tool for the religious leaders to crucify Jesus 
whom John the Baptist was very much a forerunner for, even in his uh, death. Now, we all know the story, I assume. Herodias' daughter won over the palace with her dancing. I don't want to dwell too long on what kind of dancing it was, but she won them over. Herod rewards her with whatever she wants publicly. Her mum says, oh, here's our opportunity. Let's get the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so Herod, in order to save face, has to reluctantly make good on his vow, which we know from the other Gospels, he didn't actually want to kill him. I mean, he did want to be rid of him, but not like this. No doubt Herod is guilt-stricken, and as he clearly has no regard for the revealed word of God, he is therefore taken captive by all kinds of superstitious pagan thinking. That's always the way, by the way. When there's not truth and revelation, that vacuum always gets filled by something that's dodgy, and superstition's a good option as anything else. He hears about Jesus' unprecedented miraculous power and therefore concludes that obviously John the Baptist is coming back to haunt him, which, by the way, if you do some history, is not the first time it's happened. Herod killed two of his sons, he's that kind of a guy, and their ghosts were in his palace, according to the historian Josephus. Guilt and paganism are the reasons given as to why Herod will not recognise Jesus as the Christ. The tragic irony is that if and only if Jesus is truly God's Messiah, then he actually does have the authority to forgive sins. Herod's best hope would have been to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ and turn and be healed and come to him and find rest for his troubled soul. For the blood that Jesus would shed on the cross would cover up even the blood that Herod spilt from John a billion times over. And with Jesus, there's no superstition or paganism. He really did perform the supernatural signs. He really did suffer and die on a Roman cross. He truly endured the holy and righteous anger of God against all sin. And then he rose bodily from the dead in order to prove he's certainly the Christ who offers new life to all those who come to him in repentance and faith. Jesus removes both our subjective and our objective guilt in the sight of God. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. And any Christian can say that of themselves. The stupidity of superstition and that horrible burden of guilt, which all of us have known in some form or another, ought to drive people desperately to repentance and faith in Jesus, who is the way, the truth and the life. But they are often the reason people knowingly or unknowingly reject the lordship of Jesus. One of the greatest tragedies, of course, is that superstition and guilt historically have easily found their way into the church, into the people of God. Third century, you've got a bunch of missionaries going further east in the European countries, bringing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got people who are into paganism, animism, that sort of stuff. You've got magic water. It's got healing properties, apparently. The Christians should have said, no, that's ridiculous, but they didn't. Anything that's received by God is holy. Instead of calling it magic water, just call it holy water. You can see where paganism and superstition just easily come into the church. Worship our ancestors. Well, Christians in the Bible are called saints. Why don't you honour saints? Oh, it just becomes worship of saints. It doesn't exist in the Bible, but it's just paganism. 
brought in to the church. Not surprisingly, churches that have that kind of paganism also often struggle with guilt. Now, if familiarity, along with paganism and guilt, are reasons people fail to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ and as the Lord, then what are the reasons people will receive Jesus both as Lord and Christ? Well, the answer is we recognise our deep need and come to Jesus for his deep compassion. Verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And you can sort of make a good educated guess as to why he would have done this. Uh, Perhaps Herod would now send people to try and kill this reincarnated John the Baptist, right? Want to get rid of him? Perhaps Jesus now knew that really, given John's ministry is over, it wouldn't be long before Jesus himself would be murdered at the hands of royal power in order to complete his own ministry of paying the price for the sins of the world. But continuing in verse 13, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns and uh, to travel by foot in order to catch someone on a boat means you're pretty keen, right? Boat's much faster, you've got to run. These people are coming to Jesus on account of need. They're not the ones he went and visited, these are the ones that are coming out to him. And instead of Jesus running away further in order to stay out of what could be the dangerous public eye, verse 14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, they beat him to it, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In other words, Jesus continued exercising his ministry with his miraculous power, even though it was now even more likely to get him murdered. Maybe some of these people were the the exceptional people from Jesus' own hometown in in Nazareth. Uh, Maybe some of these people carried horrendous guilt, like Herod, and knew they had to come to Jesus. He was their best bet. Maybe some of the people had started to recognise the foolishness of the pagan superstition of the Roman world that they'd been caught up in. Certainly some were in need of physical or spiritual healing. But what they all clearly have in common is that they come to Jesus recognising their neediness. And he lays aside his own interests, his own self-preservation gets laid aside in order to meet their needs. And so it is with us. No guilt is too much for Jesus to pay for and alleviate in total. No familiarity is too much for Jesus to overcome by his infinite goodness, his infinite power, his infinite love. No paganism, superstition can ever stand up against the one who personifies and embodies truth. If you see your need, you will also see his compassion. To summarise, familiarity, paganism and guilt can easily prevent people uh, from recognising their initial or their ongoing need of Jesus' compassion. Familiarity, paganism and guilt can easily prevent people from recognising their initial or ongoing need of Jesus' compassion. That's why, with my vote for the number one most deadly sin, I actually agree with our Catholic friends. Number one on the list is pride. 
unlike anything else. Pride is kind of like the polar opposite of the, the, the recognising your neediness. It, it doesn't allow you to view yourself as wretched, humiliated and therefore desperately in need of the help of another, like these people who ran to Jesus to get their sick healed. Pride prevents that. It removes that possibility uh, entirely. In terms of implications from the Word of God, there are a couple of easy practical things that are worth considering, but then much more importantly, there's an area of which the renewal of our hearts and minds uh, needs to tend. I'll start with some simple practical stuff first. Uh, with the familiarity stuff, get some spiritual input from a theologically sound source, but one that is outside of your circle, either in time or place. Uh, see, I know I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else. I can get to the point where I'm going through the motions when it comes to my relationship with God. Anyone, be honest, you know, when we're saying the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and you just kind of rattle them off, you know, because it doesn't make any... That's fine. It, it, it happens, right? We like that. But because you, you are rightly concerned, you're driven by the Spirit of God in order to be concerned to not let familiarity breed contempt, and you've seen what happens when, when that's the case in Jesus. You think to yourself, well, what can I do to kind of prick me out of that every now and then? Well, here's an idea. Get some spiritual input from a theologically sound source, but one that's outside your circle. Example, if you happen to be a reader, check out something from the saints of a bygone era. If you don't know who the Puritans are, find out. Read some Richard Baxter, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, William Perkins. Read some Reformers, Calvin, Luther. If you're not much of a reader, I'm really pleased to say that in our growth groups next term, we're using a series of studies uh, written by Gary Miller, who happens to be the current principal of the theological, uh, Queensland Theological College, who was born and raised in Belfast Island, who studied theology in Aberdeen, Scotland, who then did his PhD in Oxford, England, and now lives in Brisbane, Australia. Right? He speaks funny. You can't hear him because it's all written, right? But that is, that's a great... Just buy your books. If you're, does anyone even know? Who knows about this, that we're doing this for two Corinthians in our growth groups? Good. Get the books and do it. That's, that's a theologically sound source from, from somewhere sort of beyond our circles. Uh, anyone listen to podcasts and stuff like that? Don't do this for your main spiritual meal of the week. Your main spiritual meal's here in a growth group, but yeah, listen to one of the bigwig Americans every now and then. That's fun. There'll be points where you disagree with them, and that's actually kind of helpful. That'll, that'll break the familiarity cycle. Second thing, you've got to fight the paganism and the guilt. The antidote to guilt is... Well, there's actually three antidotes to guilt. You ready? Number one, confession. Number two, confession. And number three is confession. Even though you know that God knows every last detail of your sin and your failure, you know God knows it, tell him the details anyway. Tell him the details or tell someone else the details and ask for him to apply yet again that eternal forgiveness which he won for you at the cross. 
for which Christ is only ever always desperately ready and willing to provide, for he always lives to intercede. The antidote to paganism is fellowship in the truth. Fellowship in the truth. Not just the truth, but fellowship in the truth. See, Herod simply told his attendants that Jesus is a reincarnated John the Baptist. When you're the king, you tell your subjects what's going on and nobody speaks back. One of them could have put up their hand and said, well, according to the Bible, that's bunkum. Yeah, he'd probably lose his head as well, right? You can't do it. Terrible to get into that position where you have so much power or so much isolation. You're a profoundly private person that you just can't allow anyone else to, to contravene or contradict what you think and feel. Fellowship in the truth is the antidote to paganism because where there's not truth, paganism creeps in and uh, God has actually given us one another to kind of, I don't know, I guess help us be accountable to one another in understanding and discerning truth. The one guy who did tell Herod straight up what was going on is John the Baptist and that's why he was headless. When you're thinking your opinions are only as valid as the next guy, then your tendency towards error, including superstition, can be kept in check, just as you, in turn, can keep others in check. Um, be wary of the... How do I put this? The distant, private person who remains distant and private. It's often an indication that they don't want to be confronted or challenged by the truth. Be loving to such a person and confront them anyway. You might lose your head, just saying. But more importantly than those practical things, and the thing that really underlies these issues, is the pride, and you've got to work out how to fight the pride. Pride is the most insidious of sin. It was the first sin to enter the world. It will be the last to go. And pride is the one that's easy to detect in others and the most almost impossible to detect in yourself. You actually need other people to keep your pride in check, which, again, you've got to watch out for the one who always wants to distance themselves. How do we do it? Well, I'm going to ask a preacher better than myself. Here's uh, what old man Jonathan Edwards said once about this, this topic. I'm going to read it slowly because it's got that old English vibe going on, but I'll translate a bit. Here we go. Do we humble ourselves to accept the righteousness that God in Christ hath provided for us? It is a common working of the heart of them whom God is drawing to himself. They dare not close with the promise. They, they don't embrace his promise, that is. They dare not accept of Christ and his righteousness. It would be presumption. In the, I'm not going to throw myself wholly on the righteousness that God gives in Christ. That, that would be presumptuous. And the answer is common, that, it indeed, uh, that indeed this is not fear and humility, but pride. If I'm not going to openly throw myself on the mercy of God, it's not because I'm being pious, it's because I have pride. Men know not how to humble themselves to a righteousness purely without them, without being not from within me, but 
an alien, a foreign righteous. Men know not how to humble themselves to righteousness purely without them on the testimony of God. The heart is not willing to do it. We would willingly establish our own righteousness and not submit to the righteousness of God. But how is it with our souls? Are we clear in this great point or no? If we are not, we are at best shuffling with God. We walk not with him. You know what shuffling? You got pride getting in your way and not accepting the righteousness of God? At best, you're shuffling along with God. You're not walking with him. He, God, admits none into his company, but expressly on the terms of taking this righteousness that he hath provided, and his soul loathes them that would tender him anything in the room thereof, as men engaged to set up their wisdom and righteousness against his. The antidote is to do something like this. I can only put it in words. It's to say, God, I'm going to read your word today or God, I'm going to meet with my church family today and I know that there's stuff in me that I can't see and that stuff that I can't see says I don't need what you have to offer. I don't know what it looks like. I can't give you the details. I'm blind to it. Other people will see better. But God, I can't see... What's in me that makes me blind to what you have to offer? So God, please help me to accept your righteousness. Please enable me to grab what you offer, not what I have. It's a position of spiritual prostrating. It's an attitude of saying, I cannot, I do not, I will not, but you can, you do, you will. That's the best I can give it. But I think I don't need to give it any better because I think everyone knows what that spiritual posture is. And uh, holding on to dignity is like hitting your head against a wall over and over. It just feels so much better when you stop. To that, and I'm actually going to pray that very thing for us now. Let's, uh, Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that unlike those who willfully misrepresent and misunderstand the Lord Jesus as Saviour and Lord, that we, on account of your great mercy, would be great killers, would be great murderers of pride. We recognise it's a very difficult enemy to see and we need one another even to point it out. But Father, as we come to you uh, in your word, as we come to you in fellowship, as we come to you in private and in public, as we come to you in prayer, may our spiritual disposition before you be one where we want to recognise your great love, your great righteousness, your great solution and our great inability, our great inadequacy, our desperate need for you to be the one to meet our needs, for you to be the one to make us sufficient, for you to be the one to give us our salvation and our ongoing sanctification. Please help us in this task by the power of your spirit at work within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.